Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hey, welcome back. Today, my guest is Dr. Stephen Porges. Dr. Porges is the originator of the polyvagal theory, a theory that emphasizes the importance of physiological state in the expression of behavioral, mental, and health problems related to traumatic experiences. Dr. Porges is a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University, where he is the founding director of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium in the Kinsey Institute. He is Professor of Psychiatry at the University of North Carolina and Professor Emeritus at both the University of Illinois at Chicago and the University of Maryland. He served as President of the Society for Psychophysiological Research and the Federation of Associations in Behavioral and Brain Sciences and is a former recipient of a National Institute of Mental Health Research Scientist Development Award. In this episode, Dr. Porges and I will talk about what the polyvagal theory is, how it relates to ADHD, how past stresses and traumas directly influence our day-to-day behaviors, especially those from childhood, and what we can do to help regulate the nervous system for ourselves and our children so we can live peaceful, happy lives. I have the honor and I'm excited to welcome Dr. Stephen Porges. Thank you, Roman. Looking forward to an interesting dialogue with you. Me too. Um, so I've been, I'm a dad. I've been researching uh, ADHD for about seven years. Our oldest son, who's now 12, Kai, he got diagnosed mm-hmm. and something just didn't feel right. And I trust my intuition. I was uh, thankfully raised uh, in an environment where I had enough uh, flexibility, you know, where, where questions of like, what do you think came up mm-hmm. at least once in a while. And so I trusted that and I started digging deeper and we now got to a point where uh, trauma and stress on the nervous system comes up again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And your name came up and the polyvagal theory. And so I just wanted to uh, perhaps just have you uh, introduce yourself uh, as in how did you get to the polyvagal theory? Um, and then I'd love to for parents uh, or anyone listening to sort of get a, a layman's version of what is this theory? Sure. Actually, uh, uh, it came, uh, it evolved over decades of research. So even though it was, you know, evolved or was presented in uh, 1995, I had been a faculty member since 1970. So I was a very young assistant professor. By 1975, I was actually studying ADHD. So there is a commonality here in terms of understanding that. But the theory really came from my work in in development, in human development, and specifically in uh, young infants. So I was watching, in a sense, measuring autonomic regulation, the physiology of of risk factors, literally in intensive care units where babies are born. And I started to think, well, what if we could measure during delivery or even the last trimester? Could we get indications of whether that nervous system was under challenge and can we start developing strategies of, to rehabilitate. So I was working on this and I ended up with a, what I called a paradox. 
because when we start getting into the what does polyvagal mean, it's a word, you know, it's a word that I made up, but it means more than one vagus, more than one. Uh, the vagus is this large cranial nerve that goes from our brainstem to virtually all our organs. And it was through my work with the high-risk babies that I was able to identify that we functionally have two different pathways. A pathway that is functionally protective and had basically gotten all depressed. We think about the vagus as this protector. It's our uh, mediator of sympathetic arousal. It calms us down. Uh, we take deep, slow exhalations, and suddenly we're calm again, or at least better than we were before. We take, we inhale and blow off. We become mobilized and angry and aggressive. But something happens, and we could actually see this in the high-risk newborns, that if they had this uh, vagal inhibition, this, this, in a sense, the powerful one that everyone writes and talks about, it was manifest in a heart rate pattern. The heart rate became oscillatory, went up and, and it went slower, it increased and decreased with breathing. And that uh, change in heart rate is actually called respiratory sinus arrhythmia, giving it the attribution of being part of the respiratory mechanism involved in it. But that system was totally vagal. Okay, so that became therefore a measure of cardiac vagal tone, another term that gets thrown around, or a measure of heart rate variability, another measure that's that's used a lot now. And the interesting part was that if we go back 100 years or more, people were studying the identification of the cardiac inhibitory vagal fibers as having a breathing rhythm. So it became an obvious metric of vagal tone was to look at the amplitude of those oscillations. How much does your heart rate increase or decrease with breathing? In the newborn and in the preterm baby, this is a protective factor. If they have this pattern, they seem to be doing fine. They don't suffer from apnea where they stop breathing and they don't have clinical bradycardia where the heart rate starts dipping so slowly that it's life-threatening. <clears throat> but if they don't have that respiratory sinus arrhythmia, they are now vulnerable for tachycardia, increases in heart rate, and sudden collapses or shutting down. Now, so this creates this paradox. How could the bradycardia this uh, says potentially lethal slowing of heart rate be vagal, which it was attributed to, and the protective breathing pattern in heart rate also be vagal. And that became the vagal paradox. And that led to the polyvagal theory because it identified that they were two different vagal pathways that were sharing the same cable, the vagus nerve. They were coming from different areas of the brainstem. They were communicating different information. The, uh, bradycardia, the slowing of the heart rate through the vagus, was really something we inherited from our reptilian ancestors. So when reptiles are frightened, they immobilize, they, they literally stimulate their whole vagal system. So they defecate to reduce the metabolic cost of digestion, and they just appear not to be alive. Mammals don't have that luxury because if they start doing that, they pass out and potentially get injured and potentially have what's called hypoxia, hypoxia, non-infoxion to the brain. So it basically identified that there were two different vagal circuits. And the answer not only was in the neonatal intensive care unit, where you could see this, but it was also buried in textbooks in a uh, unusual discipline called comparative neuroanatomy. And I don't invite anyone to uh, step into that discipline, but what you start to find is that 
with the transition from reptiles to mammals, you start getting this second branch of the vagus, which is this calming branch, and it becomes linked in the brainstem. And now we start moving into the world of ADHD. It gets linked into the world of the neural regulation of the muscles of the face and head. So when people are exuberant, when the smile is in the upper part of the face, and when their voices are pros prosodic, meaning having lots of intonation, they're utilizing a vagal system that is calming. And of course, intuitively, we know this. And then if we start to reflect about ADHD kids at the flatness of their upper parts of their face, look at, in some situations appearing as if they're not really there, not having the softness and the exuberance and the voices being different, meaning not melodic and engaging, but literally much more, uh, let's use the term aggressive or abrupt. So we can see it in our day-to-day -day interactions. And what polyvagal theory was, it gave a language to an understanding of the behaviors that start coming out of these different physiological states. So if we can recruit this newer mammalian vagus, well, we're the sweetest kid on the block. If we can't, we're vulnerable to our defensive components of our autonomic nervous system, which is this mobilization sympathetic nervous system. And of course, the parents see this as aggression and oppositional behavior. And then if that doesn't is as enable the child or the individual to navigate into a sense of safety, they may shut down. They may literally totally withdraw. Now, I, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. I may be jumping ahead, but is it fair to say that I hear this all the time, uh, ex, so-called experts say, well, it's a problem of the brain. And what I'm hearing while I was doing research on a lot of your interviews, yeah. that really, yes, it, it might end up coming from yeah. the brain or it might looking yeah. that way, but it's not the originating source of I the issue. I think you're grabbing onto the real message. The real message is yes, you can affect the brain, but listen, if you were on a treadmill for six hours of the day or eight hours of the day, or if you or if you had a mask that didn't enable enough oxygen to come in, your brain would be reflecting it and your body yeah. would start developing strategies to adapt to that, to survive. So your, your point is really correct. The issue is in the world that you're in, as well as the world that I'm in, when we start seeing physiological or neural correlates, we start thinking that they define the disorder. We think of them as causal and not merely consequential or meaning a response to it. If we reframe the question, and this is really why I'm on uh, talking to you, because I think it's extraordinarily important to reframe the question of what is ADHD or what is ADD? What, what is this entity? And we can step back and say, if I'm an observer, a good observer, without any preconceived uh, diagnostic criteria from the DSM-5 or DSM-4 or DSM-3, what do I see? I see a nervous system that is locked in the state of threat, a nervous system locked into a defensive mode. So we don't have to use words like anxiety or stress. We don't have to use the word like uh, a diagnostic, like attentional deficit. We can say, well, this child's nervous system is in a state as if it were trying to defend, trying to take care of itself. So now we look at it in a different way and we have to ask different level questions. How do we convince, 
or trigger, whatever terminology you want to use, the nervous system not to be in state of defense. That's beautifully said. And I almost want to jump up and down because, you know, again, I'm not an expert, but I, I've been intuitively feeling that we're not honoring our children's issues. We're actually jumping to the conclusion there's something wrong with that. Yeah, I, I'd like to really uh, get on on this this point. Something is wrong. So as a parent, you're hearing that. But your child is also hearing that, too. So your child is hearing not just from a physician or a psychologist, but also from the parents and the teachers. The child is hearing that they're being evaluated and the evaluation is not a good evaluation. So what does our nervous system do when we're evaluated? Go back and even think about how you feel or have felt taking tests or how you feel when you go to uh, to the physician's office and you get that's a series of assessments and you have to now wait a few days to to get the phone call what's your body doing already it's in a state of threat so yeah. we know that evaluation is a metaphor for a nervous system being in a state of threat we also know that this is how schools work and then we ask the question why are kids not feeling quote safe in schools Part of it is that the schools aren't safe. And we think that safety is about physical injury. Safety is about who we think we are, how we feel about ourselves. Do we feel confident? Do we feel safe enough to be who we are? And if we start to build a model of what education should be like, it should be about allowing the, the beautiful core of humanity to express itself. That should be our goal. I love that. I love that. And I my I would just saw my wife earlier and uh, she said, please, can you ask one question? She always has one question. And she said, but what is the role of trauma? And she said, you know, this could be spiritual or not, but do we need it? Do we want to always avoid it? Can we, you know? Okay. So immediately, see the word trauma now is well into our public consciousness. And you can already see from or hear from her question that it's being modified to deal with the world that she sees. Okay. Now, trauma is functionally from a polyvagal perspective, I wouldn't say irrelevant, uh, but the events are relatively irrelevant. The most important thing is the reaction. So we tend to start attributing causality to an event. Uh, but what if that event is not what triggered the response? So the issue is we need to literally ask the child or ask the family, uh, what is it that you're reacting to? What bothers you? Be a good witness. We tend not to be good witnesses. We tend to see symptomatology and then put a diagnosis on it and then the treatment model on top of the diagnosis. Let's be better observers. Let's honor the other person and let's functionally learn to be a witness. And I think being a witness conveys with it that we're not evaluating. Yeah. And you and you often talk about transgenerational trauma, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, let's go back to trauma. Trauma is obviously the, the way it's, it's being used and the way your wife is asking the question. Trauma is a trigger to the nervous system, moving it into a state of defense. It doesn't mean that if your nervous system is in a state of defense, that you were traumatized. 
So this is where we mm. get into circularity and misunderstandings. Yeah. But the features are we know that the nervous system of many who carry that diagnosis of ADHD have been, in a sense, is in a state of chronic uh, defense. In a sense, let's even make it simpler. Their bodies aren't calm. Right. And that that that's the arousal that I also had made a note that, that this arousal yeah. that gets stuck in the body, or at least that's my interpretation. Yeah. But is, let, let's throw out all the words. Arousal also carries like, then you start saying, well, it's too aroused. But let's ask this hmm. question. When your body doesn't process cues of safety, what does it do? What's it supposed to do? What did it evolve to do? It evolved to protect you going to states of defense. Um, so it's the problem that we have in our culture is that we see ADHD not as a state-related disorder. We see it as a brain, et cetera, disorder, and then we need to change it. Uh, we don't see it as an adaptive that you're in the state. It's an adaptive feature. So how do we get you out of that state? Is it, is so. it fair, fair to say that, I know this is simplified, but it's external versus internal. We treat it like an internal thing, but it's really the environment and the impact on the nervous system that has come from, from the right. environment, right? From Well, let's, yes, but it becomes internal. You see, that's- Right, it that, becomes that, internal, yeah. That's the yeah. paradox going on. So this is really where people like me, I, I view have been exploited and misunderstood because we measure physiology. And there's a issue or let's say a belief that if it, if you can see a physiological difference, whether it's autonomic, meaning uh, neural regulation of the visceral organs by the brain, or whether it's higher brain structures uh, through imaging or uh, high density EEG measurements, people start thinking that it's a destiny, it's locked into the body. And we have to see the nervous system as an integrated nervous system, both head and body. Our body is talking to our head and our head talks to our body. And basically, it, this whole uh, one nervous system integration evolved to enable us to survive. So if we start saying, uh, asking the question, what's going on in the nervous system of a child who carries a diagnosis of ADHD? And... Then we start asking other questions. How does that nervous system profile overlap with other diagnoses? How does it overlap with people with PTSD or trauma histories? And we find out that all these conditions have common features. The body's under a state of threat. The body has shifted from supporting calmness, homeostatic function, social interaction, co-regulation with another person, to the immediate here and now. How do I stay alive? How do I protect myself? And I do that by keeping others away. Um, this brings me to a related but slightly a detour topic, which is that of an initiation, right? Of uh, say boys being initiated in certain cultures. To me, it's always felt like it was a planned, anticipated trauma or traumatic events that they would have to get used to, right? Like survival. And, and is it possible that in those cultures, there was less uh, or there was more preparation for such events than in our culture. 
Well, I think it's quite, yes. So I actually had a discussion on the podcast where a person said to me that they had had a Kundalini experience, which is, uh, you know, through yoga, in a sense, it, it's a powerful one in where, in a sense, a feeling of energy is literally blasting through your skull, up your brainstem, yep. uh, up your back. And I said, did you train for this? Which is your question. And yeah. the guy said, well, I could feel or anticipate it coming. I said, no, did you train for this? And this is your point, that in certain cultures, these massive shifts in autonomic function or going from calm states to, let's say, really uh, frightening ones, our nervous system has been prepared with it and develops an anticipation that we will recover a state of safety. Mm. So that's, I like that. Yeah, because it, it go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, let's play with this in terms of roller coasters. A roller coaster, metaphorically, is the f- same physical experience as jumping out of a 10 story window. Right? <laughs> Except but, you, you think in a roller coaster, you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, well, let's assume that's true. Okay? That's assumed. Yeah, let's assume it's true. So you have this physiological experience of free falling. But you have a top-down anticipation that you're not going to get injured. And that's really what you're saying about other cultures or historically. Yeah, there. If, if it's initiation right, you're going to be jolted. You're going to have these experiences. But the expectation is not that you're going to die or be physically injured. Right. You were prepared by the elder right. that you will be fine. This is needed. You're going to do yeah. great. We're going to be there to support you. Yeah. But yeah. it'll hurt. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, it, it's, it's going to be disruptive. It's a, it honestly hurt. You're going to experience something that you're not totally prepared for, but we can yeah. prepare you up to a yeah. degree. And what we're doing, of course, is, I mean, if you take that metaphor and saying the real uh, initiation right and is really the educational model where you take the child from the parent and you bring them into a school, into a classroom and are the children uh cooperative or co-regulatory or are they aggressive is the teacher calming and inviting and regulating or is she functionally dissociated and just going in and doing her thing and children feel basically abandoned in in her classroom so we see all these features going on because we're in a way disrespectful of our nervous system's need for cues of safety yeah, I, I just what, what just came up is that we I think we uh, I don't know the right word undervalue or we disregard the sensitivity of our nervous system from a early stages so much that we yeah. we don't know the impact that that stress and these events can have on it. Right. Yeah. So what you basically are mentioning, and this is very polyvagal informed, is this construct that I uh, develop, which I call neuroception, which is the nervous system's evaluation of risk in the environment or in the body without awareness. So we can call that a type of sensitivity that our nervous system has literally radar, it's evaluating cues, and we're not really well-schooled at what cues we're looking for or detecting. And except Again, if we become that naive observer and watch the crying baby calm by the mother, we know the features, the melodic voice, the facial expressivity, the gesture, our nervous system calms down. 
what do you do with your dog? Or if you have a new puppy, you talk to it the same way. You use the slow movements. But what do we do with our children? We think our children are cognitive entities without a neuroception for any of these cues that everything that a child does is volitional. And yet so much of her behavior is not through intention. So a child who acts out a lot, their intention may be to be a really good kid, but their body now is in a physiological state that does not promote reciprocal dynamic interaction with another, but is oppositional. And I guess that's where we jump in and go like, oh, he has the traits of someone with ADHD. It probably has a th this thing, right? Well, Versus yeah, again, it, it's just, we're very, um, okay. We need to take on a much more optimistic viewpoint about fl the flexibility and plasticity of who we are as a species, meaning our nervous system in the world that we live in. So if we have a child, and I would say that I had one of my children uh, ended up having, part, let's say, uh, being uh, coded, okay? So we all know what that is. And yeah. I, uh, you know, he's now a faculty member, so he's, you know, doing very well. But the issue was that, um, they're, we're a developmental maturational organism. We will change. And what we're doing is placing such a burden on families and kids to be in, to inhibit, to have inhibitory, what they would call skill, skill set. And I was really, uh, I would say, I was personally abused by the school system when my <laughs> child was young because they said, you shouldn't understand. And I was really uh, affected by their perspective and their perspective was that if a child had difficulties, you don't work on those difficulties. You just take that out of their curriculum. So, uh, and I thought being coded would be great. They just would work slower with him and the, you know, he'd develop a skill set and he'd have success. But what happens is when individuals are coded, they're not getting that sense of success within that classroom. And yeah. this creates more and more of a defensive posture. When you say coded, you mean labeled with a disorder rather than yeah. Yeah, catered was, to. Yeah, yeah, right. So it was, even though it carried the, uh, was uh, uh, exceptional or, or, you know, really bright. Gifted. Yeah, they, they had a, a term. I mean, I have, I will use a, a psychological term. I, I've repressed those interactions. And yeah. that, that child's now 40 and doing extraordinarily well and an amazing parent on top of that. That's beautiful. And that's beautiful. And, but I'm sure back then there was this fear and, you know, for the parents listening, there's a fear of like, what if my son or my daughter doesn't yeah. turn out? Well, yes, I think that's true. And I think that's, uh, but that was not where I was. I was saying, what if my son's experience in school isn't positive? That's where I was going. And how is that going to be internalized in his journey? Uh, and so I was interested in things other than what they were saying, because he was very smart. He, in a sense, he didn't need the school to teach him. That wasn't the issue. I saw education as a socialization process mm -hmm. and welcomed public school education uh, for that reason. But we ended up having to take them out of public schools because they were too restricted in. Yeah. By the way, there's justification for that because classrooms are large and uh, uniquenesses are viewed as deviant. 
And the issue is we have to be much more understanding. Well, that's really great to hear. And I, I would imagine that had also something to do with you uh, uh, looking into uh, ADHD or studying or, or um, yeah. you know, uh, because for me, it's also a personal matter. I never thought I never was interested in ADHD until the, they said our son had ADHD, you know? Yeah, but, you know, I, I've, uh, you know, I still hold my faculty titles, but uh, from 2001 to 2012, I was a professor of psychiatry at uh, Illinois University in Chicago. So that's where the medical school is. And there are specialty clinics there. I ran a research uh, uh, institute, or it was called the uh, Brain Body Center. And my colleagues in the department had their specialty clinics, like uh, ADHD cl clinic, uh, childhood bipolar, uh, autism. The interesting thing was the diagnosis that the child got was really primarily based upon what specialty clinic they went to, not the features. <laughs> really? So that you could find similar children in three different clinics. It wow. just So it tells you that this so-called entity has, has soft edges because it's functionally a phenotype. It's meaning what's observable with different diagnostic skills. I'm much more interested in what are the processes. So if an individual is hypersensitive, which is going to be often features uh, of, of ADHD, if they have sleep problems, uh, which will give you literally a warning that autonomically their body is not being regulated, their autonomic nervous system is uh, uh, not well uh, it, it's destabilized. If mm -hmm. they have gut problems, which is also going to be free, gut pain where they don't want to go to school, um, you start seeing a lot of features that are autonomic that create the platform upon which the phenotype of ADHD rests. It, what, that's amazing because I always say, you know, there's this neurochemical imbalance theory. And I say, it's not, it's not due to a chemical imbalance. Yeah. They, there might be a chemical imbalance, but like you said, you can run on a treadmill for two yeah. hours and there'll be a different chemical balance, right? Well, this before. is the same uh, terms have been used for anxiety disorders and you know, mental health disorders. Again, it, it's in part, I'm not going to say it's totally wrong, but it's in part due to the misunderstanding of the origin of a disorder, whether you're really measuring the reaction of having these features, or is this the underlying neural mechanism that the body is in that creates these features? And right. so I take the optimistic view. And I also emphasize that we have to think of our physiology as moving into different states. Uh, just like water could be an ice cube, or water can be steam, or water can be a fluid. Our body has uses the same, uh, basically has neural structures that move us into different adaptive states. <clears throat> if we have to mobilize, we take off our calming circuits with this newer ventral vagal circuit to mobilize, to enable efficient use of sympathetics. If that doesn't get us to where we want, our body may use that primitive bradycardia reflex that's associated with reptiles. And we may just literally 
shut down, dissociate, and withdraw from uh, contact with others. Mm -hmm. But if we're, in a sense, in a well-regulated environment, we start utilizing all attributes of the autonomic nervous system in a social way so that we use our calming social engagement system while moving, while playing. We look at other people, we talk to them. So social play becomes a neural exercise for individuals with features with ADHD. And, and if you think about that, there's also going to be issues with kids with that diagnosis, as well as children with autism diagnosis about how well do they play with others. And, right. and so a parallel play becomes something you don't want, playing with, a, with electronic toys by themselves, not good. Social interaction, wonderful. Playing with your dog or cat, Wonderful. These are neural exercises to bring that system back into a more co-regulatory way. And tell me about uh, when I first started learning about the nervous system, it was just sympathetic, parasympathetic, you know, regulation, dysregulation. That was enough for me to wrap my head around. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then you, along came your theory. And I was like, whoa. So for parents, like uh, how could they sim how could you simplify it? To Sim what can they do? Right. Okay, basically everything has to do with our nervous system detecting threat or safety. It's as simple as that. Our nervous system does this outside of awareness, so it's not a sense of intentionality. You don't say, you don't have anything to be afraid of, stop being afraid, it doesn't work. It's like solving depression or anxiety by telling someone, don't be anxious and yelling at them. This is what the child's facing in this world, he's being told that he needs to inhibit a body that detects threat. It doesn't work, but it doesn't work to yelling at a baby crying. How effective is that? However, singing a song, using a melodic voice, gestures of support, calm the child down. Use the metaphor of a dog, calming your dog down. If you talk to your dog like you talk to your child, you'll see really changes in that dog's behavior. Uh, you'll see it getting very upset because the cues of safety are not being conveyed. The cues of safety enable that dog to go on their back and to expose their ventral side, their belly, with literally a smile on their face, wanting to be touched, not submissively allowing you to touch, but wanting to be touched. And in a sense, our nervous systems crave the opportunity to get rid of all our defenses to feel safe enough in the arms of another. So I was talking about a hybrid state where our social engagement system with our facial expression and vocalization and our vagus actually contain our sympathetics from going into a meltdown or aggressive behavior. So we can dance and we can play. But our social engagement system, the use of voice and intonation also enables us to immobilize and functionally to feel safe in the arms of another one. To like a baby conforming in, on the chest of its mother, just feeling so safe, but the mother is also feeling safe, embracing the child. These are the experiences that we know intuitively enable us to feel safe and comfortable. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear that coming from you and you know, you're an expert in researching this. For my wife and I, it's always been this, be this intuitive feeling of like 
I, I'm going to use my uh, French for a minute. It's like to heal our shit, like as parents <laughs> to, to really heal what needs to be healed yeah. with ourselves so that we don't transfer this to our children. I think, again, you brought up something that is extremely critical, and that is the internalized expectation of being a parent. So what you're saying is, uh, I'm going to actually push it out all the way, the embarrassment of a child that's not compliant because you feel evaluated. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm saying there's a real realness to this because you're being blamed yep. in, in, let's say, teacher-parent meetings. You're being blamed. You're not. It's not a journey to help the teacher remediate the problem or to explore what's going on at home versus what's in school. And sometimes they're totally different perspectives of the child's behavior. And because threat in the school is great by peers and by other forms of evaluation. So you not only have academic evaluation, you have chronic social evaluation. And, any, and being different is being different, is being treated like you don't fit in in the same way. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely, I, I remember the day when our son was uh, flagged by his teacher and, and she told us that she thinks he has ADHD and my wife started crying because we had no idea what it was, right? Yeah. And she looked at my wife and she said, don't worry, you'll get used to it. And I was thinking, get used to what? Like hmm. the, the fact that it's, it's there for life or the fact that you have a broken child or, you know, it just seemed like a very... Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Well, you also have an issue of the pathway for, of treatments because it's uh, basically pharmaceutical treatments become the primary portal. And I want to basically say it, pharmaceutical treatments are not necessarily wrong, but they're not the only pathway. They may be an efficient initial pathway to getting systems in, in, in a sense manageable. But I would hope that people would start going more into what I call neural exercises, including play and social interaction, getting the nervous system back in doing what it's supposed to do. I would also hope that teachers don't put children with ADHD in the front row, that they actually put them against the wall or in the back because their bodies are so tuned to detect movement as threat that if they are in the back, they are looking forward. They're not concerned about what's going on behind them. Mm. And so if you understand the fragility or vulnerability of the nervous system being in a state of threat, you start to design your classrooms to, in a sense, down, downgrade the uh, level of threat that's reaching that child's nervous system. I love that. Yeah, I always call it the removing the the, the amount of friction between a child yeah. and his environment, right? The, yeah, the, more, the more we can. But you're also, I think, embedded in what you're saying is sometimes the kids are just overwhelmed. And re reducing the stimulation can help them manage the world because they're overwhelmed because cues of threat. While a more resilient child with a nervous system that can functionally self-soothe and calm uh, in a classroom environment is fine. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but the the first point is that the educational model is not a model that is going to be supportive of a fragile nervous a nervous system that has been retuned to be more threat oriented. 
being threat oriented is not a broken nervous system. It's a nervous system that is kind of locked into that state. And the issue is how do you unlock that? How do you get the nervous system back? And what I'm saying is look at the mother and the crying baby and pick out some of these cues, understand that like reciprocal play recruits these, understand that singing recruits these systems of calming, understand that playing a wind instrument is a very efficient way of developing that neural circuit. Even think in terms of things like yoga and breathing exercises, ways in which the body starts recruiting different attributes of self-soothing and calming. Also, recognize that self-regulation doesn't come from uh, intentionality. So this is really part of where the child is being abused by the school system and the parents with them, because it's the ability to inhibit uh, to pay attention, not to be distracted, that is one of the features that are being used to a sense to evaluate the child. But self-regulation is derivative of co-regulation, meaning that if the child can be co-regulated, then the probabilities of self-regulation become higher. Our culture says co-regulation is uh, basically coddling the child uh, taking, uh, not allowing the child or spoiling the child, terms like that. But we have to understand that you really can't spoil the child. The child, if the child develops true co-regulatory ones in which the parent feels calm by calming the child, the child's nervous system has, quote, learned its lesson. And what it does is gives that child's nervous system great boldness to explore outwardly and to then self-regulate. So if if I could just oversimplify it, and, and I know nothing is oversimplified in life, especially not in science and medicine, but would it be fair to say that if uh, if a parent is calm and the environment is calm, not at all times, but for the yeah. most part, that these so-called symptoms or behaviors of ADHD can start to dissolve or dissipate in a child? Well, I, I think that is what we would optimistically anticipate, but there's going to be individual differences and there's also going to be difficulties in creating, let's say, an environment that has only cues or has more potent cues of safety because we live in a world in which parents are not safe. I mean, we're living through the pandemic and you can just, I can just imagine uh, the family structures who have children who have vulnerabilities of being in threat-related states, um, that they're picking up the cues of the parents who are not getting their, let's say, their appropriate dose of social communication, social interaction to regulate their body. So we think about uh, the evolution of social mammalian species, the evolution of humanity. When we as a species have been challenged or threatened, how do we co-regulate? How do we mitigate those threats? We do that through a co-regulatory strategy of being with another person, talking to them, or just being witnessed by them, just being supported. And the pandemic has really reduced the resource in, in, the, in a sense, the whole world, because we're really being... Uh, we're, we're really getting heavy doses of uncertainties yep. and uncertainty to our nervous system is threat. Mm. 
Yeah, I agree. I was going to ask you about the pandemic because I feel like this sort of uh, social distance and I'm sure that's reduced the amount of social cues or especially our children, if they didn't go to school or that there were masks, there was less social cues they could take in, right, to look for safety. Yeah, well, the mask isn't as bad as many people think it is because it's the upper part of the face that is conveying the cues of safety. It's the muscle around the upper part of the eye and the intonation of voice. So it's not perfect, but it's not devastating for social cues. Um, what is lost is proximity and uh, basically the proximity of individuals with each other and the reciprocal nature in, in how we behave with each other. I'm much more concerned about what the parents bring into the home with children who have vulnerabilities. And I think this is totally underestimated. Uh, if we look at population statistics, we realize that during the pandemic, there was a significant number of families who were food insecure, rent insecure, and there were a significant number of families who often with those other two features, which are financial, didn't have a high speed internet at home. Mm. So, so everything was going against them. And then on top of that, the, we have to understand that having a history of adversity or threat or trauma, whatever term we want to use, changes our physiology. And that's really what we're saying about ADHD. The physiology has changed. But that's literally saying if your physiology has changed during the pandemic due to these stressors, then it's a pre-existing condition for the virus. So we start finding this really interesting word, pre-existing condition, and we leave out of that uh, all these high-risk environmental issues. We did, right. a, we did a study uh, during the pandemic where we looked at uh, adults, whether they were anxious, depressed, and how much they were worrying about the pandemic and getting the virus. And this is, was with people who did not have the virus. And adversity history was related to adverse, adversity history was related to the symptomatology, more worry, more anxiety, more depression. However, virtually all the predictive value of adversity history was accounted for by a measure of people's uh, subjective reports of their autonomic state. So if their autonomic nervous system was more, let's use the term, threat reactive, uh, and all they were doing were describing the physiological changes that they could feel, it basically predicted everything. So in a sense, it's saying that we live in an environment, our autonomic nervous system is detecting cues of threat, it retunes appropriately, but when it retunes to deal with threat, it interferes with our ability to co-regulate, to solve problems together, to heal, to feel good. So even like watching news, if somebody watches news on a daily basis, it's fear riddled. That can't yeah. be good for the nervous system. No, no. But the part that would. OK, so we all lived through uh, the uh, basically the whole history of the pandemic and we were given horrible messages. We were never given the message. This is not a good thing, but we are going to solve it. And this is how you get out of it and we're all in it together. So, and the interesting part is the solution is in front of our eyes about the pandemic. And that is, these are effective vaccines with minimal 
adverse effects. Um, and it's just amazing, I mean, how effective they are compared to like the flu shot or other uh, vaccinations. This is, this is really big science uh, breakthrough to help humanity. Yet the distribution of it and the shared value of becoming vaccinated, the public health message, was so corrupted that there's uncertainty of whether the, the vaccinations will uh, create, uh, let's say, poor side effects that will they'll actually create other issues or that they work or that the disease itself is a myth. So we, we're right. really given very poor messages as opposed to, let's use the term, the metaphorical parental mes message, which is, this is a difficult situation, but we have your back. We're working on it and this is our plan. And you can track to see how well this plan is being implemented. And we invite you to share the journey with us. It, I, I'm, I'm smiling because you just gave me a visual of the government being my parents. I'd be like, I don't want those parents. That's right. <laughs> you know? That's right. Right. Be, yeah. be saying, you know, I, I don't want them making decisions for me, which is what we used to say to our parents. Uh, I'm, I can do this, but we need to present the government in a much more uh, positive way. And in a sense, it's been presented so negatively but isn't that a good metaphor for how the education system presents itself, the expert, yeah. the ADHD experts, all of it is very much focused on the problem, the negative, the doomsday, yeah. you know. Well, prophecy. yeah, and so is medicine. So mm -hmm. it's all because there's a belief that if you scare people enough, they'll be compliant. That's not exactly what happens. They become agitated, oppositional, and sometimes just totally withdraw. Mm -hmm. So it has to be more, let's just, um, I, I would say the message has to be polyvagal informed, which is you're only going to get the message out there in medicine and education if the person feels safe enough in your mm -hmm. environment. Mm -hmm. And what that really means is that you, whether you're a teacher or a physician, you're part of a co-regulatory team. So it's a shared journey of knowledge, exploration, and even medicine becomes a shared journey of learning about your body. Mm. Yeah, no, this is fascinating. I, I have two more questions. Um, one was related to, uh, you mentioned medication, and you also, I agree with you, it's not that medication or, or stimulant drugs are bad, but if they're used uh, for more than just a, a temporary management tool, yeah. right, if they're used in the long term, what do you think would be could be effects on a child's nervous system or psyche or confidence? Uh, these are important questions. And having been in a psychiatry department where clinical practice is, that's a, how people make their living. And many of the people who have been involved in ADHD, uh, they're very strong advocates of medication. So I don't discount its utility. I just talking about what I, from a theoretical view, would see as a more uh, optimistic and even plausible strategy. So it's, it's this optimism that the nervous system can recalibrate itself and that anytime we internalize or take in external uh, medication, and we're talking about uh, not merely ADHD, but we're talking about other mental health disorders, mm. we're retuning the feedback loops of our body. And functionally, receptors learn from the external drugs 
and the internal feedback loops get weaker. So the long-term chronic use of medication sometimes has an adverse effect because it creates a different type of dependency. So I think the use of, I think it's a complicated question. And I think part of it is the fact that uh, contemporary psychiatry uh, is very focused on pharmaceutical interventions. It's kind of what they want. I would say they want. They they want an intelligent, uh, evidence based model, uh, in which they uh, and the dream was, and the dream I would say about twenty years ago was that you do, you learn enough from the genetics, and that will lead you to the appropriate pharmaceutical remediation. Right. I think that was an optimistic uh, misdirection. I think the reason it's a misdirection is that the genetic features of any of these mental health disorders that we're literally skating across the surface on, which is ADHD or autism or childhood bipolar or any of these anxiety disorders, uh, the genetic contribution has never been really strong. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean there isn't any genetic contribution, but I would probably guess that the genetic indices are probably going to be much more related to, let's use this term, uh, vulnerability or fragility of autonomic regulation. Mm -hmm. uh, so it becomes this issue of state regulation creates the vulnerability for the mental health problems. I think we have to rethink how we treat disorders. And I think psychiatry focused on a functional belief system that if you were accurately defining the phenotype, you would find a genotype underneath it. But the issue is that many clinical disorders have common features, core features of state regulation disorders that do not define the specific uh, disorder that they're walking around with. It's been viewed as part of it, but not the defining features. Uh, my perspective is that what you've done is create a inverted triangle. And at the base of the triangle, that narrow point is the brainstem. And when that brainstem shifts states, then you become a higher brain structures can start reorganizing into literally an infinite number of unique disorders. So you have common features, but the unique features are really emergent properties of that very simple physiological state dysregulation. And how does... Uh... PTSD relate to uh, ADHD or overlap? or Well, this is interesting. The ACEs studies, and actually uh, there's there's work on this showing that uh, even, and this is, I was at a, a, a uh, conference, I was talking at a conference on, uh, for basically foster children. And the person who spoke before me was a, an ACEs expert. And she was talking about um, the, um, relationship between trauma history, ACEs history, and ADHD. And up to that point, this is about a decade ago, I was assuming that maybe there is a underlying, in a sense, unique neurophysiology to ADHD that wasn't, in a sense, quote, trauma-related or threat-related or uh, not the same as what I'm talking now about general common corporate. And then I realized that, yeah, uh, we're asking, we're not asking the complete picture. So if we talk about whether it's autism or ADHD, seldom do the uh, 
clinicians on intake go into the full complicated clinical history. They're looking at the symptoms, they're diagnosing and prescribing. It has to be done very quickly because of how medicine is managed. But a long detailed clinical history will start to point out things that can be disruptors in the child's development, that can be related to uh, the threat, a divorce, a medical procedure, an illness in the family, or even moving. You know, these are things of violation of the predictability of the child's view of safety in their own home and what is the nervous system doing. <clears throat> and the point is that they, people never did, I would say people, many clinicians never had the opportunities to start asking these questions. So in essence, um, summing this all up, I know we're coming to the end here, um, there's really there are different levels of threats, right, to a child's safety from the small, tiny little one that we think has no impact, which probably yeah. does, to the really loud, crazy, traumatic impacts. But you're saying all of it makes a difference depending on the child, depending on the environment, well, depending on the time. Let's reframe it because you fell into a trap. <laughs> ah, did I? Damn yeah. it. <laughs> you, you start to, in a sense, evaluate and grade functionally the intensity of the event. And oh. I'm basically going to say you don't have a clue huh. because you don't know what that nervous system did with that event. You don't have a clue. You're making global judgments, you know, that like uh, incarcerated, like ACEs, incarcerated uh, uh, father or a death of a, of a parent mm -hmm. or uh, being raped or physical abuse. These are powerful things. So they literally override. And that's why ACEs is so powerful. But ACEs also neglects an important dimension. And that is, what about the people who, who have had these gross reactions to things that most people say, trivial yeah yeah and so they functionally are not honoring the individual's nervous system and they're making in a sense uh excluding that person again because now it's we end up with these words what are you so troubled about everything's going great in your life um yeah yeah and, and of course there are people that i've known who are no longer living who were people said that about them and then they took their own lives so we don't know what's going on inside of them, especially in this world, because most people aren't that honest about their own mm -hmm. feelings, mm -hmm. because part of the culture says, don't tell me about your feelings. I, I, I have this statement uh, about we've grown up in a Cartesian or a Descartes world where it says, I think, therefore I am. And I always like to ask people, what if we grew up in a world that says, I feel my body Therefore, I am. And it's actually fun to do that in the French, because in French, you can use the, the reflexive form of the word to feel, which we don't have even in English. So feeling to touch, feeling inside our body, it's the same verb. And so the issue in French, using in the reflexive form, I feel myself. You know, what would the world be like? Hmm. And remember what uh, the Cartesian dualism led us to, and that is, uh, keep it to yourself, sit on it, because everything is up here. Your kids are telling you that it's not just up there. They can't even get there because their body is pushing them all over the place. Now, without there being any tools or skills, what would you tell parents 
from you know you with your own experience of having had a child that might have been coded but now turned out what can you tell parents uh in a in a nutshell not to worry about or what to focus on uh if they have a child with adhd that's young now right okay so i i would first say take a deep breath slow exhalation calm down uh think optimistically look at your child in terms of what your child likes to do when does your child have that smile of exuberance that you feel that moment when you feel connected with the child how can you expand those moments so for my kids i used to take them to amusement parks you know because they they loved it and i loved being with them doing that because we did it together and so we had these massive visceral physiological shifts but they were shared and we were protective i was protective my wife was protective of our kids so it was an experience without severe danger so what i'm saying to the parents is look at your child and think about what that child loves to do does your child like to swing does your child when you push him do you have a dialogue do you feel connected um things uh can you play games and where you're looking back and forth at each other uh, that would make your child well i should say make you use your own body you will know when it's right you will feel connected now there are going to be parents where the connection is very difficult and they feel that they love their child but their child doesn't love them for those parents understand that that's not that's not true the issue is your child is not expressing the neural physiological features of facial expressivity and intonation and gesture that your nervous system craves to feel loved yourself so you literally have to understand what is it that is hurting in you versus what it is that your child is tempting to do what i learned about my kids was really that they were good kids that they wanted to be good kids and i would basically say you'll find the same thing out they just in an environment in which their bodies are under states of threat and so the task is how do you get that body out of a state of threat can you develop neural exercises to maximize the ability not to be in a state of chronic threat and then also if there if if you are is as prescribed or your physician or psychiatrist wants to try medication it's not necessarily bad because it may give you that window into expanding into social interaction and then take them off after you if you start getting the types of behavior that you want where the child now has the opportunity to experience success in co-regulating with another person and build off of that Beautiful. Well, thank you, Dr. Porch. It's been a delightful conversation. I've learned a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And I'm going to review this again. And there's so many nuances that I want to, you know, obviously share with my wife. And I just appreciate your your time and the work you're doing out there for 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 the world. You know, it's really uh, improving lives. So I want to thank you for that as well. Well, Rowan, thank you so much for inviting me. And it's an important mission that you're on. And I want parents to leave our dialogue, our interaction with an optimistic view and to think not in terms of a broken child, but more in terms of rehabilitation, that you're allowing your child to be the wonderful child that your child is. 